Hey everybody, we're going to take a break from the package overview in this episode and instead talk about, I guess, communication or what we're going to communicate about communication uh, or community or or something. Here, it's a thing that I've been taught, I've been thinking about rather a lot for years, really. I mean, it's, it's something that I, it's one of my, my favorite things to sort of ponder, I guess. I mean, not because, not consciously, it's just I keep going back to it. So there's a danger, I think, at least for me, and I, I, I don't think it's unique to me, but I notice it obviously in myself because I am me. Um, and that is that when I learn something new, I always kind of assume that I'm the last person on earth to have learned the thing. Everybody else already knew it. I was late to the party. I got it now. I'm caught up. And of course, that's not accurate ever, I think. I mean, maybe maybe one time out of six billion it was, it, it's accurate, but, but gen- I mean, and that, that would assume that everyone, no, it's, I, I, I don't believe it could ever be true. So, there's, the, the, that assumption is dangerous, but I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's a certain personality type, maybe it's a certain learning style, but it's something that people do kind of assume, that, that once they know a thing, everyone else who needs to know has gotten caught up along with them, or has already been where they were going. In fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna deviate from the established, approved topics here, and I, I'm just flipping through a book that I have a physical book, and this is this is just an example. This is, I'm not I'm not really deviating that much, but this is an example. Don't worry if if it sounds strange to you. But the the this is page one. Well, okay, page seven. The first page in a book with with actual words on it. The the front matter, not you know, discounting the front matter. This is it says, what is a role playing game? A role playing game is an interactive story where one player, the game master, sets the scene and presents challenges, while other players take the roles of player characters, PCs, and attempt to overcome those challenges. And it goes on like that four, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen about 16 pages or so and and you could argue that it's it's fewer because they deviate from the topics but i'm i'm using this as an example because this book i mean you can't see it but the book that i am holding in my hand is 622 pages long it's a big book uh it is you know like um what is it uh i forget what this is called the tablet sized i don't know it's about the size of a of a a4 sheet of paper or a letter size piece of paper in in uh american measurements so it, it is a large book it is just it's it's dense it is physically large it is it's got a lot of pages presumably if you had if you got this book, this role-playing game book, then you you probably acquired it intentionally. You don't usually stumble upon a 622-page book about a topic you don't know. So why, on page 7, the first page of, of, of writing on in this book, why do they have to tell you what what kind of book it is. Surely, if you bought this book, you know what kind of book it is, right? Well, no, not not right. R- wrong, actually. That that People do make that assumption. They, they I hear that a lot, and that's why I'm using this as an example. Like, if you are in the tabletop role-playing community, you'll hear a lot of people kind of rolling their eyes. Can you hear people rolling their eyes? Well, you can see people rolling their eyes. You'll see people rolling their eyes at that kind of introduction. And, and people do 
mention it frequently with a little bit of um a little bit of an eye roll you know it's like oh that that section in the book that obligatory what is a role-playing game section can we finally stop writing that section and that's a great question i think that's a fair question if you're within a community and you're looking around and you see uh, 30 different writers writing essentially the same thing like i mean i can literally this is the the chapter i just read the the page the paragraph i just read to you is from the pathfinder second edition rule book which was published let's say 2020 let's say it could have been 2018 could 2019 whatever recently but i could go back to my bookshelf right over there um and and grab a book from 85 or from um that's actually probably the oldest i have um but i could i could grab a book and from like 1985 literally or seven whatever and and take that book off the shelf and open it to the first page and do you know what you would find yes you'd find that exact same section not the same not you know it would be worded a little bit differently in fact hold on i'm gonna let me test this theory. Okay, I just walked back to my bookshelf and, and grabbed a, a book, one of the older books. So this is from 1989. This is the second edition advanced Dungeons & Dragons player handbook. And I go to page uh, 8 on, on this one. First paragraph, you are reading the key to the most exciting hobby in the world, role-playing games. These first few pages introduce you to the second edition of the most successful role-playing game ever published. Um, if you are a novice role-player, stop right here and read the section labeled the real basics on the next page. And you go to the next page and, predictably enough, the real basics. This section is intended for novice role players. If you have played role playing games before, don't be surprised if this is familiar. So games come in a wide assortment of, of types. Board games, card games, word games, picture games, miniature games. Even within these categories or sub... Wow, this one's verbose. But you get the idea, right? There's a whole page here. Page 8? No, sorry. Page 9 and page... 10 and 11 and arguably on into 12 and 13 if you count like the glossary which i think i would count because that's kind of establishing terminology um there's the introduction to again a book that you presumably bought because you because you were looking for a role-playing game and yet right up here in the front of the book the term is defined as if though you'd never heard it before. And so if you look out, if you're in the hobby, you, you look out and you see 30 different authors writing 30 different versions of essentially the same tutorial, the same couple of pages in every single book, just with slightly different wording, you might start to wonder, like, haven't we covered this material yet? Do we continue, do we need to continue covering this topic? And I think there's a really good argument that you don't need to. Because, I mean, come on. You're a community. You've got lots of people. You, you all know what the, the terminology is. You, you, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be role-playing game. It can be anything. You just fill in whatever applicable thing there is in your community or your hobby or your, your industry. And, and the same thing applies. At least that's what you might think. But as I said at the very start of the episode, there is a danger to thinking that once you understand a concept that, well, you must have been the last person to figure it out. Everybody else already understands that concept. I think we fall into this trap a lot in the, I'm going to just say tech industry, because I don't think this is a really an open source or even just a Linux problem. This is a, this is a problem across lots of industries, but I mean, the least I can do is, is talk about the tech industry on this podcast. So I'm going to say a across the 
tech industry, um, I, th I think we fall into this quite often. I feel like as we develop, and that includes lots of things, which I'm going to talk about momentarily here. But I mean, it, it talk, I'm talking about code as well as just mental development, personal development, personal skills. As we develop things, I think we frequently fall into the habit of just assuming that we've leveled up along with everyone else. So now we're all, we've all, we've all gotten up a level and now we can talk with, with some baseline assumptions. And well, now hold on, that actually makes sense, doesn't it? Now now I'm now we're back at the yeah, we don't really need to cover this stuff again. Because I mean, after all, if we have some baseline assumptions, that just speeds up communication because it's it's literally impossible to start at the beginning. Well, maybe it's not literally impossible, but it's it would be ridiculous to start at the beginning of of everything, you know, every day. It would be like groundhog's day. You would just you would you you You'd get up and you'd have to reintroduce everyone within earshot to who you are, what you do, what Linux is, what a desktop is, what a mouse is, what a keyboard is. You know, I mean, so that's silly. That's obviously unrealistic and unnecessary. There are, there are certain foundational levels of knowledge that we, we have to make the assumption those things are common knowledge. But how do we know what common knowledge is? Or, asked a different way, how do we communicate to other people what their expected level of knowledge might be. And I think that right there is what we miss a lot of times in in the things that we that we're presenting to others as as you know open source and linux enthusiasts. I think sometimes we forget to sort of make it clear what the what the requirements are for them to kind of follow along with something. And again, I do feel like that's a difficult line to draw because it's not a solid crisp line it is very fuzzy because you think well i'm going to talk about the gnome desktop and specifically i'm going to talk about um, the files application the file manager well now we have to assume I mean, at the very least we have to assume people understand you know if they've come here to learn about the files application in Gnome, we gotta understand, we, we gotta assume that they understand what Gnome is. And if they know what Gnome is, they must know what Linux is. And if they know what Linux is, then we can assume all the rest. Like, well, they know a keyboard, they need, they know a mouse, they, they know how to connect to a Wi-Fi connection, they know how to, um, you know, they, they just, we're gonna assume a certain level of knowledge. Because otherwise, why would they have come to this lesson? Why, how, would it, how would they have gotten here? Now on the internet, unfortunately, that's not always a safe assumption. People can get to all kinds of places on the internet by accident. You end up on an article about the GNOME desktop having no idea what it is. Who knows how you got there? I, I think back to my early, early days of of first discovering Linux, and I mean, I was dancing all around it so many times without ever understanding what I was looking at. And that's fascinating to me, you know, it's it's like near near misses, and that that is kind of interesting to look back nostalgically and, and think, oh, what, 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 what would have happened if I just asked one more question when I when I saw that thing, what if I just said I'd like to try that, or or tell me more about it? You know, like what would I have gotten into Linux earlier? If I'd gotten into Linux earlier, would I have been frustrated because it wasn't as easy as it was when I finally did get into it? So I remember finding things that you know I wasn't 
quote-unquote supposed to find uh, uh, yet like in my in my story arc i wasn't ready for emacs running tetris when i found it or or whatever um i mean actually there are other better examples but it's not the point the point is sometimes you find out about things when you find out about them and, and you know and and you understand them later and that's okay but let's say that we're trying to optimize that experience as much as possible because that's what communication is ideally about we're, we're trying to to spread knowledge about certainly open source about linux about technology more broadly and if you're trying to do that if you're talking to people you may as well talk optimally right i mean there's communication is is important like if you're gonna bother you may as well at least in my opinion you may as well try to do it well and so thinking about like these obligatory chapters that a lot of people think oh that's just that's that's repetition that's extra extra information that we do every single time we're wasting paper we're wasting time we're wasting space why bother everybody knows this already well okay let's let's think about that for a moment what what could we do to optimize that process well one just off the top of my head we could write it once instead of writing it 30 times in every single rpg rule book that ever comes out year after year we could just have one person write it one time and we could put that document on the internet and we could link back to it from other sites we could print that document out onto like a little sheet of paper and fold it and put it put stacks of it uh, at the front counter on uh at your local game store or at the bookstore where people are buying these books you know whatever um that could be like that we could we could attempt to spread the information that we insist all everyone already knows of course that's not true not everybody does know so we do have to spread that knowledge but we could spread it separate from the individual implementation that would work keep it modular that's usually a good practice and i think for the tech industry that's kind of the same concept and certainly we we see some of this every now and again like you'll have like sort of a a, a canonical inf uh, uh, explanation of something of course what you consider canonical is different than what i consider canonical and that might be different than what someone else considers canonical uh, for some for a lot of us i think maybe it's wikipedia like wikipedia seems pretty pretty definitive like lots of peer review in theory it's it's available to everyone pretty easy to link to it's it's well regarded i mean people also understand that it is editable by anyone so there's a little bit of uh, skepticism sometimes but i mean for a lot of topics wikipedia actually does a really good job of kind of being a definitive source for information is it the most um digestible source uh, not always you know i mean the 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 writing quality on wikipedia is it tends to to strive to be pretty dry uh sticking just to the facts not a whole lot of i wouldn't say context is is provided maybe i'm wrong about that but that's kind of my fear or when i say context i mean sort of the intent like why why are you asking this question let me answer in in let me answer what you're actually asking not just give you a bunch of facts wikipedia doesn't have that interaction so you know maybe that's not the best source sometimes for other people it might be some other some uh, you know a tech website like do you need to know about open source well maybe you'd want to go to opensource.org to learn about it or maybe to fsf.org or gnu.org or something then you could learn about like this 
this topic from from an authoritative source. So if if you're trying to talk about the files application on the GNOME desktop, then maybe one of the things you could do is link back to some other source to to explain what Linux is, what open source is, that sort of thing. And I think in general, I think keeping certainly thinking about the internet, I mean keeping it very uh very very dynamic, very uh hyper linked is a really good practice. I mean the more references you provide, I think the more opportunity for people to learn yet more about the topic you're you're trying to con- you're, you're trying to communicate about. Personally, I, I I don't do this really all that well on this podcast. I mean, partly because the podcast is audio, it's difficult to refer to other things. Um, but I mean, I could I could do the links in show notes, for instance. Um, but my web data sort of tells me that most people don't look at the GNU World Order website for anything. So putting references on there, while I do try to throw in some links, if I say, oh, I'll try to put that show that link in the show notes, I try to do that. But I mean, people aren't actually apparently clicking on it. So that's fine. I mean, that's easier for me. Continue not to go to that website, please. Um, But yeah, I I guess, you know, like, if I'm writing content for the internet, certainly I try to reference things on on the internet. Although I do balance that out with the, the reality that everyone has a search engine and will be able to uh, look up anything that they don't understand. Um, but being able to reference something specific sometimes is nice because then you're you're pointing them into in the direction of something that you yourself have confidence in, and that's obviously a good thing. So that that's keeping it modular, keeping references, you know, making references to things. Uh, and then I think the the other thing that I can think of is um, to 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 be okay with bringing people up to speed to a certain point, and then also to be okay with just telling people how to get up to speed. So for instance, if, well, on this show, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll give myself a little bit of credit, although I, I could do better at this, but um, one thing that I do on GNU World Order, uh, I do have a post for like episode zero zero is are you new to linux start here there you go like that's that's the intro right that's that's the there there's this assumption that if you go to the very beginning of the rss feed then you'll find the beginning you'll find the 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 you know the as as far back as i'm willing to go in my baseline assumptions which is you know what a computer is and stuff like that but do you know what Linux is? Well, probably, maybe not. So here's what it is. Episode 01 is the same thing, except for Slackware. So those are really sort of low-level episodes at the beginning of the feed that go farther back than I imagine most listeners need. Because once again, in my in 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 my view, which could be completely wrong, but in my view, people wouldn't be here if they didn't know what Linux was, right? So surely I don't need to tell anybody what Linux is. And yet, just in case, you can go back to the beginning of the RSS feed and find out what it is. Now those those episodes, of course, were not those were they're 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 lies. They're 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 dated 2008 or something to push them back to the beginning of the RSS feed, regardless of how you sort. Um, and and to imply that they came you know, at the beginning, but they, they didn't, of course. I, I recorded them in 2020 or whatever. Uh, I should probably actually re-record versions of those. I know the Slackware one is officially out of date now because it re- references 14.0.1. Uh, 
two, I think. So anyway, um, the, the, those episodes exist. And and were I to, I don't know, go into, um, you know, low-level coding or something, then maybe I could, uh, maybe I would do an episode at the very beginning talking about how to how to get started coding like wh- where would you start wh- what do you need to know in order to get up to speed so that what i'm talking about in these theoretical episodes that i would be doing in this scenario would make sense to you and i think i think both ways are okay like to actually just produce the content to you know if you're writing something online a tutorial or a wiki entry or something when you get to a point where you think are people going to know what that is you have a couple of different options you can you can link out to something that someone's already written or you can write the thing yourself sometimes it sometimes one way is better than the other it just kind of depends on what exists and what what the context is but for for you know for other options you could you, you can you can tell people hey this is what you need to know or you can give them sort of a, a concise sort of a menu or a table of contents just just let them know what they need to go investigate on their own before coming back here and i think that's fair i mean it's it, it feels a little bit less helpful than explaining everything but i mean as i've said sometimes backing up all the way to the very beginning and trying to explain literally everything that you aren't really sure that someone knows that might be unwieldy either either it's a drain on your time uh, either you've done it 30 times already uh, why would you do that again uh, or you're just beyond that and you have you you you've lost context I think that's a very real kind of side effect of it kind of goes hand in hand of okay I've learned something now everyone else in the world knows the thing well that's not true but sometimes it is true that okay now you've learned something I've forgotten everything I didn't used to know if that makes sense um, a lot of us can't really quite imagine what it is to be new to Linux today because some of us have been using Linux for 10 years 15 years, 20 years, you know, I mean, like some of, some of us longer, not Linux, but I mean, well, or maybe Linux, I don't know, how, how old is Linux now? Like 50 or is that Unix? I don't know, one of those two, but some people have been using Unix for, for decades. So there's no context anymore of like what it must be like to come from an operating system to Linux. And, and I don't know, I really don't, I don't know how similar Linux today is to uh, Windows or Mac, I don't know what those ex- the, the experiences on those are. I, I, I'm assuming Windows has an app store now. Can you get open source software over their app store? I don't know. When you install it, do you have to do something weird about permissions, like on a phone, like where you have to, like, yes, I want to use some, I want to use, I want to install this thing from FreeDroid. Stop, stop trying to stop me, Google. You know, like, do you have to do that on Windows? I, I don't know. I don't know any of these things. So, and I don't even know, like, what terminology would I use for a Windows user to sort of, to do similes, you know, like, if if I'm try- if I'm describing system settings, is that what they call it? System settings, or do they call it control panel? I've heard control panel before, but I don't know if that's what they actually call it. I know on on Mac, I think it used to be called system preferences. Is that still called? You know, I in other words, I don't know. I don't. I, I don't have that context anymore. Other people do. Other people who have friends who are using other operating systems, that they're exposed to it frequently, and they have more context. Maybe not as much context as if they were themselves coming to Linux for the first time again, but, but more context than certainly I have. And that can be a, a difficult sort of reality f- to face, and it also means that you may, your usefulness uh, at the front door is is less 
it has 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 lessened now. Maybe originally it was, you were perfect for that job because you just switched to Linux yourself. Well, the more you know about it, the further in you have to come so that when people get past just the sort of the basics and they're ready to start asking you the tough questions like what the heck is a disk partition? How do I do that? Or how do I get started with C++ or you know whatever that question might be, whatever your expertise might be, then you're available for that. So I think it's okay sometimes to just say, look, here's some information. Here's what you need to know. And if you don't know this stuff, here here are the resources you might want to investigate. I think you have to be a little bit careful about that because sometimes it, it is just sort of like you can just point people into random directions. Just go learn that thing. Okay, well, where do I start learning that thing? Like that seems kind of scary itself. So sometimes it, it's not all that helpful, but I, I, th I, I kind of think, could be wrong, but I might, might, my impulse is to say that it's more helpful to do that than to simply silently assume that someone knows what they need to know in order to benefit from your knowledge today. Now, here's the thing. There's a little programming language called Python, and they were marketed for a very long time as kind of, let's say, uh, the new uh, basic, let's say. It's not really. No one ever called it that. But I mean, Python for for a while, and maybe still today, to be honest, is, is widely regarded as kind of like a really simple programming language to learn. And I think it is, mostly. But the reality of Python or mo modern computing is that you reach a point where, you know, you're doing like pip installs and you have to package your thing up into a certain specification and you go to read about it and it's referencing these, what are, I think they are, pips or something like that the no peps or something i don't know what they're called uh it's it's a highly highly technical thing and and it's it's almost like a different side of python and how can those two things coexist how can something be super super easy for begin for beginners but have almost a brick wall between it and like the quote unquote serious side of the language i it used to annoy me and i guess it still does in a in a way just because I want everything to be as easy as possible, but but the, it it used to annoy me because I felt like it was almost sort of a betrayal of the stated goal of Python. It just felt a little bit like, well, you're 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 getting people into Python by saying, look at how easy it is. You start this little built-in idle session and you type in some code and you get a little turtle that draws shapes for you. See how easy that is? It sure is. Well, great. Now you're now now try to program a GUI application and package it for people. Good luck, you know, and it's just like it's a completely different world. You're doing virtual environments and pip installs of different modules and and then you're referencing those in your package. It's just a completely different process than what I think people are generally introduced to, which as opposed, you know, you might think well that's that's normal, right? You start at the simple, the simple with the simple thing, and then you graduate to the complex thing. But I don't know that that's true. I don't for Linux, for instance, you can start with the same things that you end up on. You're, you're you know, the, like the whole system is basically exactly what you get. Like what you see is what you very much get in Linux. Yeah, you can you can learn fancy new bash expressions, but you don't have to. And you could just you can keep using the bash that you know from your 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 starter lessons. A lot of people do. But Python, start beginning really simple stuff and then you you go to the next room and you discover that it was all a show. The, 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 there's a whole 
big engine behind it all, making it run, and it's, it's, it's a lot more complex than you'd ever imagined. But the other side of that frustration is that because of that complexity, there are a bunch of simple mechanisms like pip as much as i think oh pip is really obtuse and it requires all these specifications that you have to wade through and figure out yeah but pip is is makes python really really easy you can just include modules with the confidence eh pip will resolve that no problem you know it's like this whole ecosystem this uh, this scaffolding around what you really want to do with the language and that can't exist without that complexity like you don't just get that for free like developers have to move in and really overthink it come up with a for a few false starts you know and it's, it's taking years for python to get to this point but the point where it is is all has, has almost been definitive i mean i don't know who gets to claim sort of that model but i mean go and rust even and and certainly Python, and even Lua to a degree, I mean, with Lua rocks, you know, there, there's a lot of different programming languages essentially doing, doing that thing, and it works really well. But the communication, I think, is really important, because people sort of need to get used to the idea that there is complexity hiding behind uh, that curtain over there, and that that what they're learning right now is a simplified version, and that there's a lot more to learn yet beyond beyond the the simplified view that they've been presented. So the communication is key. Uh, the setting of expectations, I think, is is really really significant. But you know, I mean, none of this, I don't believe, is what I would call an imperative. Like it's this isn't necessary. It's also okay to just do a brain dump on a wiki and just put down the stuff that you know, and let the user, the reader, who happens on by, do the legwork and figure out what they don't know, what they do know, if it, if it applies to them, then it applies to them, if it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, that's, that's the reality of, of how things work sometimes. I think, ideally, because of open source, other people might come up behind that initial edit and and revise it and make it simpler and then sort of smooth out some of the rough edges point to other resources ex give some context here's why you might be here here's what you're trying to achieve if you're here if you don't know what i'm talking about here are some places that you might go first that kind of context i think is really important doesn't always happen and i think that's okay i think it's a matter of optimizing communication rather than i don't know refraining from communication if you can't do it quote unquote the right way um, and certainly that's the model I, f I follow myself. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I say on this, on this podcast that certain people just, it, there's just not enough information and, and they'll just have to take my word for, you know, th that this library seems cool or that this command is really useful. And that's just how, that's how it happens. And I think that's okay. I'm just, I've, I've been, this, this rumination has been more about sort of, again, optimizing communication rather than uh, saying that there's a problem or that the communication's broken or that the tech industry is 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 not doing uh, well at, at documentation. I mean, the tech industry isn't doing well at documentation, but, but we are, you know, many of us are trying, and I think that's fine, and I think it's good, and I think open source is the cutting edge of that because, I mean, that's what open source is about. It's about sharing code knowledge, and so on. So the more we can sort of boost that, I think the better, and those are some ideas on how to do it. Again, uh, from the top, a summary of the path someone might need to take to get caught up, uh, keeping everything modular, referencing those modules, providing a clear path to 
to the, a clear learning path, a concise, the concise steps that someone might need to take in order to get to a certain point, and then identifying what people need to know, where, where, where people are expected to be in order to continue. I think it's time for a cup of coffee. <laughs> coffee and it is good coffee. The other place I stopped in whilst in Dunedin for coffee was this place called Grid. Grid Coffee I think is what it's called. And uh, sort of in the front it, it's a cafe where they serve coffee but in the back there's just a bunch of um, food paraphernalia. Coffee but also I don't know like um, Italian dessert and pasta and protein shakes and just we yeah, all kinds of stuff but they had coffee there that's the important part and so i bought a kilo of coffee beans of just their house blend which i think they just call grid or maybe it was grid iron or something like that and it just took a chance really because i hadn't tasted it or anything but i just figured it was a bunch of coffee for at a at a, at a typical rate so purchased it. And, you know, it's roasted there, and, and they presumably select what they're including in the bag. Got it home. Of course, I had an, the other coffee that I was talking about last week, uh, and, and I've just started this new coffee this week, and it is really good. I'm kind of in the habit of tasting a coffee bean out of the bag. Pop it in your mouth, crunch it, see, see what it tastes like. That gives you a good sort of precursor of what you're about to taste with the infused version of that, or steeped, whatever. Uh, so I, I I did that, and it, it, it the, the bean has a really bright flavor. I would almost say, because we apparently lack words for, like, how taste works, I don't know, I, I would say almost an apricot flavor, and, and when I say that, of course, I don't really mean that there's, like, apricot flavoring <laughs> drenched into the beans. I'm, I'm just saying, like, if I had to compare it to something, I would say apricot. When it's, uh, you know, you grind it up and you make coffee out of it, it, it doesn't really have that same flavor, bizarrely. Um, but it does have a nice, deep, smooth, rich flavor with just a little hint of sort of those, I don't know, those soprano notes. I don't know how to describe flavor the way that people talk about music, for instance, which it is odd that um, maybe I just, it's because I didn't go to like culinary school or something, maybe you just don't get the language outside, maybe culinary uh, people have that language, but how do you describe like flavors? I don't know. I, I'm not really sure. Anyway, it's really good. It is a, a bold flavor. It's, you know, it's just, it's something where you're going to get a good cup no matter what. And I've tried it so far in my, pl in the plunger and in my percolator. Don't think I've tried it on the stovetop yet, the espresso. So that'll be something I'll have to try soon. But for now, the, the percolated version in the morning and the plunger version in the evening, brilliant. Really, really tasty. Highly, highly recommended. If you happen to be in Dunedin, go to Grid Coffee. You could do worse. It's really good. And, and, and it was just a place I stumbled across, too. I've never been to Grid Coffee. Didn't know they existed. It was just that I was looking at um, a train uh, in the in that neighborhood. There's a, an old train engine there uh, that you can look at. It's in, it's 
it's they they actually bring it out certain days but other days you know most of the time it's just in a little shed but it has windows and you can look at it and it's it's very very cool uh and no wait that wasn't the train engine that was the that was the trolley the train engine was over by the museum never mind some big piece of machinery it was either a train or a trolley was there and and then across the street i noticed that there was this place this grid coffee so i went in there and yeah got the coffee very good quite quite good all right let's see uh we've got some listener feedback here this happens to be the same listener who spawned the episode about void linux he says uh this is deep geek he says just wanted to say thank you for doing an episode on void linux the uh, tldr for me was when you said that it was uh, to paraphrase like slackware but with a package manager very interesting to me because while we both like lean systems, I do like, and you don't like, package managers. So taken in this light, this statement kind of summed up my attraction to Void. Couple of odds and ends. You wanted to know about Debian and init systems. Debian does support init system diversity, but packages are only required to operate at pre-release bugless levels for system D. So you can, and I have, run modern Debian with sysv, but you forego the normal level of bugless operation. Best to do this on a minimal install, as what init system is running determines, to a large extent, the underlying dependencies that apt installs. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's a Klaatu commentary there. Uh, he continues to say, You've asked in a couple of episodes about having a unified command set regarding packages. I remember an old project called apt4rpm. I don't think it's alive anymore, but I think it's interesting that the effort has been made before. Uh, yeah, that's a thank you. That's the end of his email. So yes, um, all all of those things. I think that uh, Void Linux was an interesting. It has continued to be. I st- it's still running on the laptop there in my wardrobe. Um, it, it's an interesting experience. I'm 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 enjoying it, and I'm I'm you know I, the the thing about package managers, I guess, is first of all that I'm a little bit disingenuous. I do like a good package manager, don't I? I mean, when it comes down to it. Like, I think I would really lament not having a package... I mean, not 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 having a package manager. Like, if Slackware decided, okay, we're done. We're gonna, we're gonna start using a package manager now. We're gonna take, um, uh, uh, whatever it is, AUR or whatever, Pac-Man, whatever, from Arch, and we'll just use that. I would lament that, I think, a little bit. But at the same time, on a day-to-day basis, would I really would it would it really bug me that much? No, probably not. In fact, probably I'd like it. That's a that's an assumption. That's a guess. I could be wrong. But I mean, package managers. I mean, ninety percent of the time they are a they are a a a, bo- a boon. They are a boost. They are a a good thing. They're an improvement of quality of life. Ninety percent of the time, it is just that ten percent of hey, I want to install ffmpeg, but I want to include this out of left field library that you didn't think to install in your version of the package. Okay, well, there's that 10% of the time that I just apparently, you know, can't, I'll lose sleep over it if I know that that 10% exists, at least right now. But were I to move to Void or Arch or, you know, whatever else is out there, Crux, then I, well, Crux doesn't have a package manager either, does it? Maybe it does. Um, I, I think you know. I, I think at the end of the day, I'd probably, I'd probably just get used to it. I don't know that I would get used to depending on a package manager that was really, really sort of 
its own thing. Again, I could be wrong here, but like depending on DNF, depending on apt, I just, I don't see that necessarily happening for me. That seems a step farther than I'm comfortable with, with with apt being the farthest because I'm least familiar with it. At least with DNF slash RPM, like I, you know, I can, I can do the RPM build directory. I can get the source packages. I can put them into the source RPM, the SR, PM directory and then expand it and then redo the spec file. You know, I can do all of that. So maybe that would be okay. Apt, I'm, I'm less familiar with, and so, so it would be a little bit, there'd be a, a higher learning curve. And from experience, I know that given an apt system, I would rather port Slack builds to Debian than to use apt. It's been done. I've done it. It, it. That is how I ran my iBook G4 running Debian, because that was the only thing that would install on the thing, or the only thing that would easily install on it anyway. I'm sure I could have gotten something else on it, but Debian made it real simple. So I went with Debian, and I thought, I'm going to be a Debian person for this iBook. I was not a Debian person. I was a Debian person running Slack builds. But that's the beautiful thing about package management, too, is that even if Void Linux was my new OS, or Arch, or whatever, and I decided I I would rather rather just run package source. You can do that, like or, or Geeks or NixOS. You know, you can do that if you want to. Like that, you have those options available, and that is very cool. I just had to pause the recording to take a couple of sips of the the new coffee, and I, I, I you know, I really do. I hate to use the term, but I think it's like a bouquet of apricot. That's how I would describe this coffee. Uh, it's just, it's you know, a baseline of just beautiful, beautiful coffee, just nice, rich coffee. But but after you drink it, you just have this lingering sensation like unto the flavor of an apricot. It's not like eating an apricot by any means, but it's 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 in that spectrum. It's good stuff. It really is. It's just solid, solid coffee choice that one. All right. Um. So so yeah, I was talking about package management, and I think I think it's great that we have that that choice for something that's you know kind of we think of or a lot of people think of the process of installing applications as kind of a mysterious, really, really low-level kind of process. And I mean, it must be low-level. You have to use sudo to do it. So, I mean, it must be mysterious and and, and low-level. But of course, I mean, you and I, dear listener, we know that it's not that special. It's just copying some files onto your hard drive in a specific place. And if you don't do that, then there's probably a way around that anyway. You can just install it to a different place and adjust your path and you'll still get the same results. So it's not that mysterious. And so package management isn't that big of a deal. And I I guess, you know, at the end of the day, that's kind of probably why package management annoys me, because it almost inflates this process to something that's more complex than it actually is. I mean, I can't tell you how annoyed I get, for reasons you can well imagine, when I uh, try to uninstall something on Fedora and end up accidentally uninstalling the entire kernel. Or is that, was that on Fedora? Was that on Ubuntu or Debian or something? Literally, some OS that I was running, a Linux OS, did that one time. I I installed, I, I tried to uninstall something through a package manager, and without warning, it, it uninstalled the entire kernel. Basically, you know, broke the system. So, um, that's, you know, and, and even, even without that kind of drastic sort of uh, secondhand to you anecdote, um, I think package management, just the fact that it's got that sort of, that, that database interaction 
uh, and and needs to get, get its you know, update its cache and it's got the temporary files and all of these all of these different methods which are all very impressive like it's some very cool systems when they're working correctly but it is really complex as well and i just don't feel like a lot of the the things that it does um needs to be made that complex which i think i think arguably slack builds um package source a lot of these other sort of simple packaging systems they kind of expose that they kind of demonstrate just how easy it it really is of course the counter argument to that very valid is that those simple systems you know they're not they're not very i mean they they are very simple they they do very basic processes they don't they're not going to be the thing to make a an overlay os with all of the changes that you've made so that you can then roll back uh, if you choose to reverse the changes or whatever so you know that that's the counter argument and i think that's valid and that's why I th- I think I I am I think deep down I think I would have to admit that if I ended up with a package manager late in life it'd probably be okay be fine I'd I'd get by I mean I might have to learn you know I might have to learn more about the package format so that I can adjust that one or two package that I actually need to adjust which again lately hasn't even been that that much like I haven't actually bothered customizing that many packages lately it just everything's just kind of where I need it to be which I guess with Linux is also just kind of generally true I mean my requirements have have they've they've kind of flattened a little bit um when I was working in the film industry I, I had pretty specific requirements and and you know that was kind of like a requirement in the sense that if I wanted to use open source then I needed it to do these things because that's what the rest of that industry expected was doing so I had to be sort of on par with those with with that with with my peers whereas now I'm not working in film so my 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 literal requirements are a lot less and even my hobby requirements are a little bit less just because now it doesn't matter so much I mean if KDN Live doesn't have a specific function I'll live without it I'll, I'll just do stuff that doesn't involve that specific function it's not that big of a deal um, whereas previously it was it, it was a bigger deal, uh, and and I mean like I said I haven't even bothered recompiling FFmpeg lately. It's just whatever it happens to include, good enough probably. Should I ever get some format from someone who, that I I can't read for some reason, I'll recompile my own version of FF, uh, FFmpeg and and try again. Not a big deal for me. Of course I can do that comfortably because of the lack of the package manager. But I've I've moved on from that topic. Um, the the OS itself though is is it's basically you know personally where I need it to be. I'm I'm perfectly everything works as I need it to work. And if if there is something that doesn't work like I need it to work, I'm I'm either not noticing it or I'm working around it, or rather I'm not noticing it either because I I just don't notice or because I am unconsciously working around it like is that it's that sublime for me it's just it is it's doing everything that i need so the requirements for the os itself i think have flattened so sort of drastically that i'll again if i had to if i was a betting man and i'm not but if i was i would say that if 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 tomorrow i had to start running linux mint or something like that'd be fine like it'd be I, that'd be fine I'd, that would work i mean linux mint I don't know why I chose that. I think I chose that because that's the sort of the least like that. That yes, that would be fine. But if let's say I had to start running, um, I don't know Ubuntu. Would that be okay? Yeah, probably. Like it would be fine. 
Debian. It would be fine. Like, there's just nothing out there right now that I think wouldn't suffice. It's just, it's all, it's Linux, and I'm perfectly, it, it is exactly where I need it to be. So, I don't know. Void, um, Void is nice to have around, but, but they're kind of, like, all nice to have around. They're just all, they're all, they're where they need to be for me right now. It's just, and, I, and all I'm saying is that my requirements have, that I don't think that they've necessarily, like, become less, because I still expect fancy things to happen. I mean, I still expect to be able to edit video. I still want to be able to watch videos. I want to be able to launch a, a video game and play it. You know, like, there, there are expectations here. It's just that the specifics around how those expectations are met is a lot, is a lot less now. So... And that's, I'm saying that in a good way. I'm not saying that I've, I've, I've sacrificed anything or that I've given up on anything. Like, it, it's really, it is simply that Linux is so, I guess, in, in a way, it's so far exceeded what, even what, it, I think what anyone could have guessed even 10 years ago, heck, even five years ago, I, I just, I, I think that it has gotten so darn good that you just don't really have to think about it like at least I used to think about it. Like, I think a lot of us used to think about, like, I, you know, I, I think, I think there used to be a lot more sort of like, oh, we're not there yet, we're not there yet. And, and now I just kind of feel like we're, 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 we're there. We're, we're, we're with everyone else. We're all there. We're just all kind of here now. And that's a great, great place to be. I mean, that's really, really exciting. I mean, this is, this is an open source operating system that I'm talking about right now. Like, that's how cool it is. This is an open source operating system that's just, you know, on par with everything else. No big deal. It's just, just another operating system. I mean, that's a beautiful thing to be able to say. My goodness. Okay, so that's uh, praise for Linux. It's praise for Void. What else did Deep Geek say? He said that um, Debian is uh, Debian supports init system diversity, and that's great. That's really neat because I think that System D is great. I think System D is a wonderful thing. I think it's it just works. It works well. It brings everything sort of get, get lots of lots of cool features in System D. You, and lots of features that people doing really complex things can make the most out of. I mean, the container integration, System D, really cool, really neat, great. Not something I actually need in real life, but very cool to know that it's there. Glad that people are using it to manage their container workflow and also boot their computer and and run um, what used to be run by dumb cron jobs now being done by system d those are those are better or, or at least the same great all of those things are great and theoretical because i'm just rattling things off off the top of my head i mean they all are things but I, I don't know about the the specifics of the benefits but system d is great but i mean obviously as a slackware user i want to know that applications are being developed beyond system d above system d be, you know be, just like i was talking about maybe two episodes ago or, or one episode ago um the canonical slash uh, Ubuntu sort of debacle, I guess, with Unity, the Unity desktop, how they, they were developing Unity, everyone knew that they were doing Unity on their own, whereas Gnome 3 was clearly doing something else, and everyone had to ask, like, why, why are you doing your own thing, Ubuntu? Well, it's open source, people can do that, you, you're allowed to do that. Did it seem smart at the time? Not terribly. Would it have been better maybe to just reskin GNOME 3 like they're doing now? Yeah, maybe. Who knew? Who knows? Uh, it seemed, once again, it's it's hard to, you know, you look at Ubuntu, you look at everyone else, and you say, oh, there's a big difference there. And you look at Ubuntu and then you look at Linux Mint. It's not that much of a difference there, and yet Linux Mint 
they've got cinnamon and mate and and gnome three you know they they did everything from the start like they did everything the way that you I, I think anyone could have expected or wanted i mean it was i don't know linux mint it was just continually impressive um so there's unity and people were writing applications for unity using these little widgets for U unity that wouldn't work elsewhere that was a problem and that's the kind of thing i don't want to happen on system d or because of system d and i think projects like debian saying yeah we're gonna we're going to use system D because I guess, you know, for whatever reason, somebody there thinks that's a good idea or not somebody, but some people, like lots of people think that that's a good idea. Like someone's deriving, some people are deriving enough benefit from that, that that's making, you know, building their distribution easier or whatever it's doing for them. It's not one person. So obviously there's consensus. And yet there's also a consensus that the alternatives are important. I think a project like Debian sort of insisting, now we're not throwing everything else out for systemd. We're going to support systemd first and foremost, but we are still supporting these. That's huge. That's a big deal. And I think it's because projects like Debian make those kinds of deci decisions that projects like Void and Slackware and whatever else can, can sort of confidently continue to use other in init systems and not really think, at least not urgently, about switching to systemd. Good on Debian. And then last but not least, of course, uh, DeepBeak mentions the, the historical apt for RPM command, and I vaguely remember hearing about this like a long time ago, and it looks like it's, I, I don't think this is still um, a project that's sort of alive. If you go to apt for the number four rpm.sourceforge.net, it looks like their latest release was in 2005. So I would have been coming into Linux just sort of, you know, after, 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 after 2005, uh, 2006, so seven, eight, you know, that time frame. So that would have, I would have been getting the tail end of stories about this tool. Um, I don't, I don't have a good picture of what it's for though. So it, it says that the, it says the apt, no, the advanced package tool apt has been available for some time now. Debian Linux distributions used it for several years. Red Hat package manager, RPM based versions, it's still mostly unknown. It was done by Connectiva, um, a Brazilian Linux distribution, though developed for their own distribution. It works with minor no um, modifications with other distributions, currently tested with SUSE and Red Hat. I'm not sure what they're what we're talking about now. Are we talking about apt still? Are we still are we talking about apt for RPM? Anyway, it says to be able to use apt, an apt repository is needed. Connectiva users are lucky in this respect, as Connectiva provides a public apt repository, which can be reached over the internet. Users of other RPM-based distributions are less lucky as they need to provide an apt repository themselves. Here is where, or actually it says were, but they mean where, apt for RPM jumps in. The apt for RPM package creates an apt repository of an ordinary RPM repository. With other words, in other words, the apt client software is provided by the apt-rpm project of Connectiva. The server-side software is being streamlined by the apt-for-rpm package. Okay, so I think what this has just told me is that there's a apt-rpm project, which it doesn't link to, so I, I, don't, I don't know what that is. But I guess that sounds like some kind of project to maybe port apt over to rpm distributions or something. I'm not sure. Really, actually... Uh, pretty 
pretty confusing from from my perspective. I, I, I don't have the historical context for this that I think I need. It's really kind of interesting because I, I feel like this is talking about stuff, you know, just the idea that, that they're that they're saying, oh, apps has been around for years, but are virtually unknown on these distributions. It's kind of, it's telling, right? Because like, Today, you would never say that. You would just say, oh, there's apt and then there's DNF or RPM. Like, you'd never, you'd never, you, you would never think of apt on a Fedora box or a Red Hat box or Red Hat Enterprise Linux, I mean, uh, trademark, um, or right, right to reserve, something like that. Um, you just never think of that. But, but at this point, like, yeah, apt was just, I guess, a tool. Like, it was just a tool that, you know, yeah, why wouldn't you run it on Connectiva, whatever that is, or, I mean, I know Connectiva is a Linux distribution, but I've never, you know, I'm, what I'm saying is that that's, that's history now. Um, and, and yeah, why not try it on Red Hat or OpenSUSE? It's just, it, it's funny because, yeah, that, that's not, these aren't sentiments of 2023. These are, these, this is historical stuff from 2005 when, when, when someone probably thought, well, by 2023, We'll all be having a choice between apt and and RPM. It'll be great. So this this sounds like it's the, the app for RPM sounds like it's the server side sort of. I'm gonna adjust the metadata files and the stuff you know maybe the directory structure of this repository so that your I guess your apt tool over on another yeah okay so I'm taking an RPM repository a, a bunch of folders with some RPMs in it on a server. I'm gonna structure it into something that it that apt would know what would expect to find. And now on the client, we're going to run apt-rpm, whatever that is. And I guess that's just apt, probably. So we'll, we'll run apt uh, on our RPM system. We'll go to the, ser the server that's been prepared for us. Apt will look at the repository, grab the RPM file? What? Not the .deb file? Nope. The RPM file. Bring it back down and install it. That's what that is. Okay. Finally decoded it. That's pretty neat. Um, it brings to mind something that's technically a non sequitur, but um, it's kind of vaguely related. The, the There was a distribution, there is a distribution called PC Linux OS. Go PCLinuxOS.com. Uh, it still exists. I mean, <laughs> I say it still exists because it's been around forever, as long as I can remember, really. Um, I mean, as long as I can remember having known about Linux distributions, PC Linux OS was, I think, it was in there, and, and they're still around, and they use an RPM database with the apt command. I don't know how they do it. I don't know if they've forked apt or what, but um, yeah, there's a, I mean, just as recently as November 18, 2023, which at the time of recording is like two days ago, four days ago, uh, there, there was a forum post about, you know, a synaptic um, software crash or something, or a segmentation fault, and the the advice has been to remove a corrupted rpm database and then to run apt-get clean apt-get auto clean reboot and then try synaptic again so yeah it's it's an rpm database being interfaced with through apt on pc linux os so that's fascinating. Of course, it is technically a non sequitur because um, they this you know what we're looking for isn't that necessarily. It, it's just a command that doesn't care what package manager you're using, and I think that would be for me the ideal. I mean, that would be just that would be great. At least to have that option, right? Like at least to have like I keep thinking, well, the logical command would be install, but of course the GNU 
project stole that from us all. Um, and by stole that, I mean created an install command before anyone imagined probably um, package management. But uh, the install command, the theoretical install command, would would be install, I don't know, Inkscape. And and doesn't matter. In, install Inkscape would then install Inkscape. It would it would it would go up to your apt repository or go to your RPM repository. Or maybe you could have a subcommand install flatpak Inkscape, and then it would go to your Flatpak repo, or install um, apt Inkscape, or maybe you could have a default. Who knows? The the possibilities are endless. The point is, there'd be a, a universal command. It would be install something, maybe even an uninstall something could be the, the reverse of that. Or you could do install dash dash, you know, remove or something like that. I don't know. However you want to do it, point is that this theoretical command would be available across all the distributions and it would just be mapped to all the different package managers and if you were one of the people who developed your own package manager you'd want to be the person to then develop the the plugin for the install command to interface with your package manager that's that's my idea somebody really ought to make that uh, happen, but first we have to go talk to the people who own the the owners, you know, the 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 namespace install, and and uh, convince them that that's that that needs a a new a new name. Uh, 2003, 2003 is when PC Linux OS it looks like got started. I just scrolled through their about us page on pclinuxos.com, and it looks like yeah, PC Linux OS name is copyrighted 2003. So who knows? Maybe that was just the most. I don't know. I don't know how long it's been around. It has been a while, though, but, you know, I mean, certainly at least 20 years. That's that's pretty inspiring. That's really neat. Okay, so anyway, I think that's everything. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open
Okay, hero, let's get you into your flight suit. 